BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brendan Storr. I'm Ian Gibbs. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, June 13th. This is episode 11, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Brendan? I am good, thank you. What's, uh, what's new with you? Uh, I did another interview for the book. That was very exciting. Oh, fantastic. Who is that with? Um, kind of a big deal, apparently. I'm not very up on podcasts, ironically. Um, uh, Jim Harold. Oh, that's great. Yeah. He talked to me, and we talked for probably 45 minutes. And then when we were done, he said, apparently it's going to be on Paranormal Podcast. That is exciting. In early July. Ooh, excellent. Which apparently has more than 8,000 subscribers, but I wouldn't know. I've never listened to it. <sighs> I know. I hit you with the fire of a thousand suns. <laughs> I know. I listen terrible. to the Paranormal Podcast every week. So I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big deal. That is very cool. Because I think it gets like, I want to say 60,000 downloads. Yeah, that's what he's somewhere there about. 60, 50, 60, 70. I wasn't really paying attention. I had to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very nice for him to have me on. He was very easy to talk to. That's the sound of passion and commitment, folks. <laughs> Follow your dreams. <laughs> And you have been asked uh, to speak at an event coming up. Yeah. Um, apparently, there's a, a readers and debaters group that are bringing me in as a local author. So I'm going to be speaking with them. I don't know when exactly yet, but it'll be happening soon. So until then, I'll just be keeping on, keeping on. Didn't you do something weird and unusual this? I did. I went for a job interview. Don't you have a job? I do. Uh, and even if I didn't, I wouldn't want this one. Well, why? What's so horrible about it? So th the story is a friend of mine got a hold of me and she works for a company that chews through new employees pretty quick. Right. <laughs> we'll put it that I way. I think I may have worked there then. <laughs> yeah. uh, so she's not responsible for running the, the local office, but her coworker is. And right. now they have a quota of people they are supposed to bring in for interviews. Like a cult? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the effect is the same. They break your mind and spirit and <laughs> then they send you out into the world to proselytize for them. Excellent. So her coworker didn't have enough people coming in. Right. So she asked me if I would come in to just help shore up the numbers. And I said, you know, I'm happy to do it. I got the day. But I t- said, well, one, you know how I dress. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, I usually dress in a, a, a an open button up shirt with a white undershirt underneath it, kind of graying chest hair coming out. It's a it's a look. It's a proud tribute to my Italian heritage. <laughs> uh, and I said, I'm not getting dressed up for this. And she said, That's fine. We have people who come in worse dressed than you. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, they're that desperate for a job interview. And I said, I I don't know if I really have a resume anymore. <laughs> she said, Brennan, really? I said, No, I I don't know that I do, but I'll check. Uh, and I did, but it was old and I don't feel like updating it. Right. So I printed out uh, a headshot of myself. <laughs> oh my God. With my name, uh, my name of my book, the name of our show underneath it <laughs> and my phone number. <laughs> and I gave him that. <laughs> what did they think of that? Uh, no one was really sure what to make of it. No. No. Uh, so I, I, I get to the office and of course I had to pretend like I didn't know my friend. Right. Or like, pardon me, I should say I had to pretend like I didn't know she worked there. Right. So walked in and it was a little bit of, you know, a little bit of theater. Oh, hey, you work here. Oh, well, what luck. I love that. Here's my resume. And then she had to maintain a straight face. While she looked at your when cheesy she headshot. pulled out my book. cheesy Instagram headshot of me in sunglasses. And what did she do? She handed it to her, her coworker and her coworker... Just stared at it. <laughs> then she stared at me. She said, uh, have a seat over there. So this whole time I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to jerk some idiot around. Right. I'll waste 10 minutes of my time. Uh, but then I, I, I'm ushered into the office by the CEO of the company. Oh. The big boss. Awkward. Wearing this immaculately tailored three-piece suit. He says to me, this is quite the resume. <laughs> I said, yes, I was up all night working on it. <laughs> What did he say to that? He stared at me. I bet he did. He's trying to figure you out. And then he he starts talking and he said, so what do you want from us? What what kind of job are you looking for? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. What do you got? What do you got? <laughs> nice. As, as he's speaking. Career planning with Brennan. I'm telling you, yeah. I, I, you're getting some free life lessons <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, what not to do. Well, hey, it's a lesson. <laughs> So as he's talking, I'm just looking around his office, not looking him at all, just taking in. People love that. I know. Yeah, (laughs) they love that when you don't look them in the eye. I could hear in his voice, he was thinking, what the f*** is happening? Yep. Because this sweaty man who's still wearing his hat, (laughs) still wearing his pork pie hat with his shirt hanging open. Perfect. Is ignoring me completely. As he takes in my office. Yes. I kept directing the subject away from work. We had a very nice conversation about marijuana legalization, <laughs> about real estate speculation, nice. anything but work. Because whenever mm-hmm. he would direct the conversation back that way, I would kind of go, eh, I'm just seeing what's out there. Oh, my God. And you should have said, I'm holding out for a management position. <laughs> You'd probably be VP in charge of marketing. Well, I'll tell you, uh, the, the, he actually, the offer increased from the entry-level position to which I was technically applying for to a team leader position. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I think he was looking at me and saying, yeah, this guy's either a genius or the stupidest man I've ever met. <laughs> and it's, it's a toss-up. <laughs> it depends on the day. Exactly. <laughs> So finally, he's mid-sentence, and I just stood up and said, well, thank you for your time. Shook his hand. Oh, my God. He saw me out, and and then I, I, I left. And apparently, he came out of his office afterwards and said to my friend, you used, you used to work with him, eh? 
and because she she had mentioned mm-hmm. once I came in, she said, "Oh, we used to work together," and she said, "Yeah." He said, "He's an interesting guy." Are you sure he wanted a job? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my master class in how to apply for a job. To not get the job. Well, I probably could have had one if I'd asked. Did, did they call you after or anything? No. 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 There was no callback for Brent. No, there was no callback. <laughs> I, I think when you when you interrupt the CEO in the middle of a sentence and walk out of his office, I think that that sort of signifies to them that you're not really interested or, in being friends. Or it's just supreme confidence. All right. So on today's show, of course, we have a guest. We have Mario Becerra, author of Haunted East Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And Mario was great. Uh, not only was he was he a great guest, he was a very patient guest because I had to record that interview twice. Oh, no. The first time was just after I, I'd had the flu. Right. And so I was I was still sort of coming out of it. And the for whatever reason, he couldn't hear me through the mic system. Oh, no. So I had to then call him on my phone, my iPhone, using a lav mic and some nonsense recording application. <laughs> and it was in my side of the conversation. You could hear me loud and clear, of course. <laughs> but poor Mario couldn't hear a damn thing. Oh, no. So thankfully, he, he, he was very cool about doing it twice. And you'll hear that coming up after the break. Have another guest with us today. I am very happy to introduce Mario Becerra. Mario is the author of Haunted East Los Angeles, an enormously popular short book of never before told tales from that particular part of the world. Mario, welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, Mario, t- tell me a little bit about yourself. I was born and raised in East LA. Grew up uh, East LA. For those of you who don't know, is well, it's east of downtown Los Angeles uh, here in Southern California. Grew up there. I uh, grew up speaking Spanish, couldn't learn English until I started going to school. Graduated from Cal State LA, not because I I chose that school, but because it was just the closest school. I guess I did choose it. It was the closest school to my house. I fried chicken for many years. I was a box boy, a box clerk. And that's uh, the guy who bags your groceries as you're leaving the supermarket. I'm sorry, did you say you fried chicken? I fried chicken, yeah, for six years. <laughs> where, where did you fry chicken? It's uh, it was a supermarket. It was called Lucky's, and then it turned into Albertson. Yeah, I worked in the deli in the back, and I for those frying chicken is uh, it's it's a dirty, greasy job, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But uh, you got to pay your bills, and you got to pay your dues. No, true enough. And and without that, we wouldn't have fried chicken, and that would be a sad world. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm not complaining. It was an honest job, good job. But then I, you know, I graduated from college, started a nonprofit called uh, Cleaner Greener East LA. And what we do there is we plant trees in impoverished communities. And then I also run a vending machine company and we have vending machines all throughout Southern California. So between those two enterprises, I can pay my bills and raise my family. That's great. I'm starting to understand why it was just a short book. I don't know how you found the time to write it. Tell us a little bit about uh, about Haunted East Los Angeles. Haunted East Los Angeles, it is a very short book and I don't shy away from saying that. And part of the reason is because I really don't have time to really sit and write. So I would write the book as a kind of a, a stress relief. 
because you know you you're running your business you you get into you know your mind just starts to to go and go and go and trying to fix problems that you can't fix at the moment because you're not out in front of a vending machine or in front of a tree so what i would do is i you know i'm just going to take my mind out of the business world and i'm just going to sit here and look at the notes that my cousin victor brought over because uh, my cousin victor west got co-wrote it with me i'm going to take myself away and just you know, work on the book. It was a great release valve for me. It was it was a positive way of coping with stress. Now, when we first spoke, you mentioned that initially when you started writing the book, it was something that you would work on at home, but then something changed and you wrote the remainder of the book uh, at work. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Something happened that made me not want to work on the book at home. I was on the third chapter called The Haunted House on Hubbard Street, which is essentially about Richard Ramirez and the effect he had on a young man that saw him get arrested the day he got arrested on Hubbard Street in East Los Angeles. Now, Ramirez, uh, and, uh, pardon me for interrupting, Ramirez was the serial killer known as the Night Stalker, was he not? Yes, Richard Ramirez uh, was known as the Night Stalker. He would break into homes and his murders were really gruesome. He scared the bejesus out of, out of everyone in Southern California in the mid-80s. Researching him is scary enough. But uh, in researching the kid that was influenced by him, there was a lot of mention of demons and possession. And being a skeptic at the time, I didn't give him much credence, but there was a, the name of a demon that came up when I was interviewing this guy. He's a grown man now. I don't know what it was. Just saying the name of the demon was really, it, there was something about it that just felt unnatural. And for writing it at home and using the name of this demon as I was writing. And when you're writing, you're just sitting there and your mind's just kind of, kind of have to just let it take its course sometimes. And when you do that with your mind and you have a demon on your mind, it, 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 it became really scary for me. Like I say, at the beginning of the book, the atmosphere in the room changes. And I believe when you're dealing with these things and thinking of these things and writing about these things, which is a very intense, intimate thing to do, you know, I really felt that I was kind of conjuring this specific demon by writing about him. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to finish writing this book in my home because I kind of feel like I'm welcoming these things into my house. Instead, I'm going to write it in my office because, uh, you know, I mean, if the office gets all spooky and scary, I, I really don't care. Uh, I mean, I do care, but I just don't want to bring it home to my home anymore. So. Now, it, it's interesting you say you were a skeptic when you started because that that very closely parallels my own experience. Over time, I, I started seeing things and having experiences that forced me to re-examine my assumptions about the world. And it sounds like you've had a similar experience. I have. I have. When I started writing the book, to give you a little backstory, my cousin Victor Weska, the book was an attempt to get closer to him. You know, I value family and you know, he he values the paranormal a lot. So I said, you know, what what a better way to get close to him than to sit and write a book together. So that was kind of the, the beginning of it. You know, I'd hear his stories and he'd tell me about his ghost hunt. Uh, I wouldn't believe in any of it. I mean, I wouldn't believe in it wholeheartedly. I, you know, somehow I would try to explain it away, but I would just dismiss it the way most people dismiss it. It wasn't until I really started getting into the, the meat of the book and really talking to people, I started hearing stories that were corroborated by different sources, independent sources that didn't know each other. And that, that's when I began to really say to myself, huh, unless there's some mass delusion, there, maybe there's something to it. 
And it was actually the, the ghost lady at Evergreen Cemetery that was the beginning of my, I guess, conversion to believing in these things. I don't know what to call it, but there's as a yet to be an, an explained other world that, that, that is here with us. And all these people seeing ghosts or hearing voices, some of them might have psychological problems, let's be honest, but a lot of these people, they're, they're very lucid, they're, they're very healthy in their, in their thoughts and in their minds, and yet they, they experience these things. And it's experienced throughout the world. Absolutely. Now, I'm curious, on the subject of Evergreen Cemetery, you, you, you referred to the, the ghost lady as being part of your process. Can you tell me a little bit about that? This story has been around since I can remember, since I was a little boy. And I knew immediately that's the first story I want to research because I've been wanting to write about it. And for me to be the guy that actually puts it into a book uh, was a real honor for me. And it was a story of a lady who would, she would walk through the cemetery really slow and she'd float. And then sometimes you'd hear her scream and, you know, there's all these theories as to who she is. But uh, we heard from different people and again, independent sources all from the community who had claimed to see her. And I went and I spoke to a few of these people myself. But when it really hit home is when I, when I put it online and this lady responded who had lived near Evergreen Cemetery, I believe in the 1960s or 50s, a very old, uh, older lady. And she messaged me on Facebook saying, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about this, this ghost lady that you, you, you write about. And I called her and we talked at length about it. And this is, East LA is predominantly Mexican-American. And prior to that, it was, you know, there were a lot of ethnicities there, including a lot of Jewish people. This lady's a Jewish lady, I believe in her 80s. And she claimed that when she was a young lady, she saw the woman in the cemetery floating across. And her account was very similar to what other people had said. So that's when I, I said to myself, no, this is, you know, this is not some delusional thing that people are. There's something there. Fascinating. So now, uh, while we're on the subject of Evergreen, you had another experience validated after the book was completed, uh, correct? <laughs> yes. We interviewed these, these three guys. Well, they were older already, but at the time, they had decided that they were going to get drunk and they needed a place to get drunk. So what better place than the cemetery at night? So they stole a bottle of vodka from one of their parents' uh, liquor cabinets, and it was a plastic bottle of vodka because the vodka was so cheap, but it would, it would do the job. So they jump over the fence, and they, they start to drink, get pretty drunk, and they start doing these very disrespectful things to the tombstone, especially to the female tombstone. They start gyrating on them, you know, doing all these sexual moves and using all this foul language. As they were doing all this, they see this, I guess, this little man, as they describe themselves as a midget, going from tree to tree, coming closer and closer to them. And they stopped dead in the track, pun intended, I know we're in a cemetery, but they, they stopped <laughs> in the track. He just went to the closest tree to them, and they're waiting for him to, to walk up to them. He doesn't come out. What they hear behind them is what they describe as carnival music. They turn around to look, and it's a, it's a goat-headed midget. They run right for the fence, jump over the fence. You know, they, they, they didn't, they, their, their flight response was instantaneous, they say. There was no stalling, they just left. And you know, it's a pretty extraordinary story. When I heard it, it was extraordinary. And I often question why I used, that, why I used it in the book. Because it's one of the ones that is a little harder to believe. But sometimes you have to just trust your instincts. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to include that one in the book. I just, I like that story. And for some reason, I really believe these guys. 
even though there's no corroboration from anybody else. Lo and behold, I released a book, and I get in contact with a gentleman named Ernie Alonzo, who runs a company called Haunted Orange County. He says, you know, I want to do a haunted East LA tour. You know, you know the material, you wrote the book, and you host it. I said, yeah, sure. He says, you know, but my company is uber professional, so you need to do your research, and we know you need to write out a some notes and we need to speak to this guy and that guy. And, you know, so that, you know, it, it runs very well because I charge people a lot. I said, yeah, sure. So I went out researching a little bit more uh, and I was happy to do it now because it was, I mean, I was happy to write the book, but this tour was going to make me some money too. So that, that was an extra incentive. So I started researching Evergreen Cemetery for that part of the tour. And I discovered upon researching the story about the midget that, in that area where the midget appeared to those boys is actually a place where they bury uh, what you call carnies or carnival people who had no money to, to, to bury themselves. And it's called the Pacific Coast Showman's Association. So right in that whole area was a bunch of carnival people. And when I found that out, I thought, wow, there's my corroboration. I mean, because you see your goat headed, where does that come from? Or I mean, what you know? I mean, lady in white, you know, lady with the long white dress, you know, the woo. All right, that sounds more, you know, yeah. more traditional, more almost cliche. A goat headed midget. You're thinking, where the hell did this come from? And lo and behold, like I said, the corrupt the corroboration for me was there. And it, it, when you hear things like that, it's it's hard to go back to the the place of of total skepticism, isn't it? Absolutely is. To say it's coincidence is ridiculous to me. Also, you know, you interview people and you listen to them and you choose whether or not you believe them. And I really believe these boys. Even without the corroboration of the Pacific Coast Showman's Association, I really believed what they were saying. And if I hadn't believed them, I wouldn't have put it into the book. Because I really ran into some people who I was just mad. This guy's telling tales out of class. But these boys, I really believe them. And when I found out that thing about the Pacific Coast, yeah, I can't go back to being a skeptic. Absolutely not. And so I guess the flip side of that is knowing then that some of the heavier subjects you're dealing with, the flip side is you now have to face that. And certainly in your chapter, I believe it was the house on Hubbard Street, you really tackle the idea of, of the demonic head on. You know, the other stories, the other five stories for me were not, I mean, they were, they were yeah, kind of scary, but the Richard Ramirez one, because it's so grounded in, in fact, I mean, it's grounded, in fact. Just the Richard Ramirez, just his murders and his killings and his rapes, that in itself is just scary. It's just, it's evil. It just, it, it gets into your bones when you, when you read about the things he did. So when you start coupling those kinds of facts and those kinds of atrocities with, you know, giving birth to, to uh, you know, the, well, let me tell you the story. Richard Ramirez... He was arrested in 1985 on Hubbard Street, which is in East L.A. And one of the boys, when they were arresting him, this young, young man comes out and he sees him. And he says, you know, when I saw Richard Ramirez, I, I swear I was looking at evil incarnate. I was fascinated by how pure his evil was. And I said, well, how would you know he was so, so purely evil? And he's like, well, you know, you see the news reports and all that. And yeah, it was kind of scary. But when I saw him in person, there was just, you know, I, I guess an aura about him. That was just something different. There was something that inspired me about him. And that's not a word that you normally hear with Richard Ramirez, but 
yeah, something that inspired me about him. And I said, okay, well, tell me about it. He says, well, you know, I wanted to practice Satanism after that. And so I would go into my room, you know, I would light my candles, I would do my thing, and I would pray to Satan. I would pray for special powers, I would pray for certain things, I would pray for money, I would pray for revenge, I would pray for this, I would pray for that. And at the same time, my parents, who were fervent Catholics, were in the other room praying the rosary. So you had that spiritual battle going on in that house. And they didn't know that the son was praying to the devil. But the father and the mother of the whole family, well, the atmosphere in that house completely changed. Not only in terms of them hearing voices that were not in Spanish or English, just voices in rooms, and the father would follow them. And the, the voices were so, uh, they were so, I guess, stealthy would be the, the right word. I don't know what the right word would be, but he was never seemed to be able to catch up with them. They could never understand exactly what they were saying, what language or what what they were trying to convey or anything. The son, he never fessed, he didn't fess up to it until the end, but uh, they would also smell uh, these horrendous things in the house coming from the walls, and there was no, there was no source to it. The dogs would act funny, they would bark at things, they would whimper at, at, at what appeared to be nothing sometimes, and all the parents knew how to, knew what to do, knew what to do was uh, just pray. They would pray, always pray the rosary, they'd go to mass, and they brought over a priest named Father Brennan, and, you know, he would bless the house. And when the priest was there, the house was very calm. And, you know, I guess whatever was there would behave itself. But as soon as the priest would leave, uh, all hell would break loose. And to add more fuel to it, the father, who was a raging alcoholic, had given up drinking for many, many years. And when all this stuff started happening, he started drinking again. And he started going back to his old habits, eating the wife. Messing oh, around on the wife, started beating the kids. The father, I spoke to him at length as well. He says, you know, when I started drinking again, all the smells, all the, all the voices, all the horrible stuff that was going on in my house, it just calmed down. And it almost seemed like I had found the answer for a, for a short moment. They say that the devil or the demons or whatever is out there is very cunning. And for me, immediately I thought, man, what a cunning way to get this man to really start drinking again. So to me, that was the alcoholism, the Richard Ramirez uh, praying to, you know, directly to the demons. I mean, that story just went beyond just a simple ghost story that you want to talk about. Or, oh, I saw that, you know, I was standing in the kitchen and then from the corner of my eye, I saw a shadow moving, you know. Those are the, the more standard ones you hear. But this whole story for me was... I mean, it wasn't just ghosts, and I mean, it wasn't just demons and voices. It was just people who were directly praying for it. And then this guy, Richard Ramirez, who I think directly influenced all of that. I think he had that kind of power. And of course, it, it makes you wonder as to whether or not it was Ramirez himself or whether something had latched onto him and whatever it was was in him saw these people and their vulnerabilities and either stayed with them instead of continuing on with Ramirez or brought something else into the home that was attracted to those you know, weaknesses. That's a good point. I never thought of that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's, a, that's a strong possibility. Like I said, I finished writing the book in my office, but even to this day, I'm very, I'm very guard. I, I guard very well with regard to, uh, you know, also what I let into my home spiritually. When I come home, 
if I'm in a bad mood or, or whatever, you know, I, I try to compose myself and then I walk in through my door. It, it's really helped me in that way. I mean, it's given me some wisdom in that, in that respect. And I think that's a great thing to take from it, you know, because there's so much fear culture based around stories of, like the one you just told. And I think it's great to be able to take, take that negative, uh, negative moment and, and bring something positive back from it. Yeah. And ultimately, I, I strongly believe that you are in control of it and that you have the power to, to just say, no, you know what, this is, you know, this is a boundary and you're not going to cross it. I strongly believe that you have that kind of power. So stepping outside of East LA, I've, do you have any stories? Or are you aware of any hauntings in, in other parts of the city? Yeah. Yeah. The one that I, that I really enjoyed reading about was stories about the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, okay. uh, I love that hotel. I love going there. I love having a, you know, a drink every once in a while. They have a, something called a Black Dahlia cocktail there. There's a, the Black Dahlia that was recently murdered in, in Los Angeles, the, the act of the woman that wanted to be an actress. Of course, so but, Elizabeth uh, Short, hotel, I believe her name was. Elizabeth Short, yes, Elizabeth Short. The hotel has a lot of great history. I mean, it was uh, the site for the 1960 the Democratic National Convention. John F. Kennedy gave speeches there. And, you know, the Beatles, when they first came to America, they played L.A. They had to, you know, they stayed at the Biltmore, but they were not, you know, the Beatles just couldn't go into the front lobby and, you know, check in and say, hey, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm you know, John, Paul, Ringo, and George. The hotel was so surrounded by screaming, surrounded by so many screaming fans that the Beatles had to be choppered into the Fillmore Hotel. Oh, no kidding. And I, yeah, and I always loved those kinds <laughs> of stories. You know, so going there and then hearing about the, the haunted stories, because uh, it was also host for a couple of the Academy Awards ceremonies. So, you know, it's got a lot of great history and it's got a lot of great ambiance there. And it has a lot of great stories, too, a lot of great ghost stories. So Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, it is reported that that was the last place where people saw her alive and healthy. I mean, the, like the general, just people in, out, out in public. Right. She was, she was wandering to and fro. Uh, in the lobby, going to a to a phone, and they say she was calling her sister, and she left, and then again, of course, she got killed, and no one saw her again. But people have reported going to the Biltmore, staying at the Biltmore, not knowing about the Black Dahlia um, murder, and they're in the elevator, and they report, you know, a woman being in there with them that is dressed in very old-fashioned clothes, all in black, and you know, they'll walk out the elevator and let her through, and when they turn around and let her through, she's no one's there. Then they go and they report it, and they say, oh yeah, that's you know who we think is a, you know, the Black Dahlia who haunts the hotel. They also see her pacing in the lobby, back and forth. There's a lot of great stories like that about the Biltmore. There's, there's tons of them, but uh, look it up, the Biltmore Hotel in, in downtown Los Angeles. You'll find a lot of great stuff. I will do. So I'm really curious, what's the response been like since the book's been out? It's been out almost two years now, has it not? You know, the response has been overwhelming. Oh, that's I, fantastic. I'm very, I'm very humbled. I mean, speaking to you, you know, you're up in Canada and you're talking to me about my book. How can I, how can I not be grateful for that? It's really overwhelming and it really is very humbling. I don't mean that in a false humility kind of way. I get stopped sometimes and people want to take pictures of me. <laughs> oh, really? That's fantastic. Hey. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, what is it? Like, yeah, the guy wrote Haunted East LA. I said, yeah, okay, yeah, of course, you can take a picture with me. You know, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, it's I I I don't know how to respond. I mean, with with you, I just say, of course, of course. You know, people want to stop and they want to talk about the book and they want to tell me their own personal experiences. 
But um, when we first released the book, uh, we released it at the East LA Library, and the place was just packed. I mean, there was people out the door. Oh, that's great. I was wondering, you know, what the heck are they doing here? I mean, who, I mean, the book just came out. I mean, and I'm nobody. You know, I'm a, I'm a vending guy. You know, I do vending <laughs> machines for a living. I'm not some well-known author. But I guess people are just interested. I guess I just hit a niche. It wasn't me. It's just I hit a niche, and I, I fulfilled a need that I think the community uh, was asking for, which is, you know, ghost stories. You know, people love ghost stories, especially where I come from in East LA. And it was just these stories have just been swirling about. And, you know, I put them into a book and people just enjoyed it. Well, as I said, it's, I, I think it's a great book. And, and I think, I think you're a little too modest. I think it's more than just a, a, a niche. I, th- I certainly, I think you've, you've found a niche, but it's a very well-written book. And, and I don't, I don't give out praise lightly. I, you know, don't, don't tell that to everyone, but I, I think it was a very engaging read. And I, again, I think it, it's really rich in historical detail. And that's the thing that really jumped out at me and I think more than anything that's what what hooked me is the fact that it it felt like you knew the place you know and you you had done the research you had taken the time and I think once you do that the readers will go a lot further with you and and I think then too it it connects that much more with the people of the neighborhood which it obviously has but again I, I think you're a little too modest when you say it's it's just the just the 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 right or just the niche because I, I think uh I think the quality of the book has a lot to do with it well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that, Brendan. Oh, not at all. Now, you were telling me that you had started working on a book about Los Angeles ghost stories proper, but you stopped. Uh, would you mind telling me or telling our listeners why? Because I, I think it's a, it, it, it's a part of the story that we just don't hear about very much. And it's a, it's a reason that uh, certainly surprised me. Yeah, I started writing. I thought, well, I wrote Haunted East Los Angeles, you know, the next logical thing to write is haunted Los Angeles. So, you know, we started we started researching different locations, but then, you know, in we started writing about the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, which I think is fascinating. Fascinating hotel with a lot of great stories, but it's already been done and it's already been told. And I started writing it and I really enjoyed the words I was putting together. I mean, I relished in them and I thought I thought my, you know, I, I, the cadence of them and everything. And, but then I thought to myself, this, this, it just didn't feel right because, you know, I mean, the book, the stories that I told in Haunted East LA, except for probably the Linda Vista stuff is, um, you know, it's fairly new. It's the first time you'll, you'll see it in a, in a book, but the Roosevelt hotel, you know, and all, probably all the other locations I would have included in, in the, in the LA book would have probably have already been overdone. So why, why redo it? Fair enough. Uh, you were saying right. also there was the the response you got was was a little intense in places. There were some people who who really were reaching out to you as an expert, and that that was a little uh, discomforting. And it's very discomforting because you know you put yourself out there on Facebook, and like I said, I'm in vending machines. I plant trees for a living. I mean, I don't know the terminology. I'm not a spiritualist. I don't spend my days thinking about this stuff. I don't spend my days studying it. But yet, since because I wrote a book, people think that I'm some kind of expert on it, and I'm not. I'm I'm pretty much a novice when it comes to these things. I'll hear the story, and I can you know I can do a decent job of putting it together. But you know, you you people reach out to you, and I'll just be honest. Some of these people they're they're kind of crazy. They'll reach <laughs> out to you and they'll tell you certain things, and I don't want to hear it because I don't know what to do with it. Right. I don't know what to do with it. 
I, I don't have the expertise to deal with it. Right. You should see a psychologist or if something's really going on with you or, you know, or, if, or if praying to the devil is a good idea or I just, I don't know. So on the positive side, you know, I did get a lot of people when I would do book talks who would come up to me and say, you know, I want to tell my story, but I don't think people would believe me. And you seem that you seem to believe folks. And I said, yeah, you know, um, tell me your story. And people would sit and they'd tell me their stories and, you know, and I'd believe them. And I'd sit there and I'd listen with a, with a compassionate ear. And what's great about the, well, I mean, just any paranormal forum is that sometimes I think people are embarrassed to tell these stories because they're afraid that they're going to be seen as kooks or weirdos or, you know, that it's going to affect their, their place in society as they're going to be labeled as crazy people. But they're not. You're not. These things that you see or these things that you hear, you're not crazy. You, you, you know, I met a lot of sane, good, normal people who have claimed to have seen and have heard and had experiences with these things. So I think it's important to put that out there too, that uh, you're, you're not, you're not imagining these things and that if you, you should be able to tell these stories without fear of any, any reprisal or feeling uh, like you're going to be, I don't know, rejected in any way. Right. And, and I think your book is a perfect way to do that. The book is Haunted East Los Angeles. It's available on both Kindle and in hard copy on Amazon, both.com and .ca. It's really only a couple bucks and you would be doing yourself a favor to check it out. So again, the book is Haunted East Los Angeles by Mario Becerra. Mario, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Mario for a great interview and uh, really a great book. I, I enjoyed uh, the hell out of that book. I, I liked it too. I mean, it's short. I mean, he's, he said that and he's not kidding. It's like five stories or five chapters, but he's really got a lot Small of Small but fierce. He's got, <laughs> he's got a lot of stuff for each chapter. Yep. Um, and I learned something new from his book. Oh, really? What's that? Well, he talks in one story at the end. I think it's the Linda Vista Hospital. He talks about how people, two separate people had experienced walking to a room that was severely haunted and they felt like spider webs on their face. And he explains that by saying it's the electrical energy that the, the spirits are producing that we feel as sort of oh. webs or whatever on our faces. So that's, I did not know that. I had not heard that before. I can't believe I missed that. Well, he's, it said twice, so. Oh, Wait, thank, read it thanks or? for hammering that home. <laughs> Did I read it? I should hit you with that book. Now, that's an interesting idea, though, because, I mean, it, I've always wondered what, when you feel a spider web feeling in a place, yeah. and there's no obvious spider web, especially when you're somewhere like out in a field where, exactly. you know, unless there's some kind of aerial spider army. Which could happen. Don't, don't do that to me. <laughs> uh, dropping webs on you in a field, it makes sense that there's some other kind of energy at work. So now you know. Now I know. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite stories was at, um, and I, I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Casa del Mexicano. Right. Where the person who was performing in a play saw a man 
uh, in black yes. taunting her from the crowd. Yeah. And then he just backed and disappeared into one of the many paintings they have there. That is creepy. Oh, it absolutely terrifying. Well, and it was a religious play, too. It was like a nativity play. I believe it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There is a lot. And that's what I liked about this book was um, – Five places or five locations, lots of stories, lots of different corroboration, which was really cool. Yeah, and lots of historical detail, which I felt really gave it great texture. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of tied it to, uh, tied it very much to the place, which yeah. I, I think explains its popularity. Yeah, because I'm sure there aren't a ton of ghost books about East LA. Uh, that's the only one. Really? Yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, usually we do a show, when we do a show, we'll we'll talk about the book and then we'll talk about a few other stories from those places. Right. But because that is the, literally the only volume of East LA ghost stories, there just aren't any. Wow. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks for listening, folks. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, remember to share with your friends if you think we're even slightly amusing. And shout out to Melanie who shared some really fascinating dream stuff with us. And it's actually got us thinking that we might do a dream-centric episode in the coming months. Definitely. Those are always good. Yeah. So if anyone else out there has some really fascinating lucid dream experiences or precognitive dream experiences, uh, shoot us an email at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Or on Facebook, Ghost Story Guys, uh, the page, and uh, we can get messages there as well. That too. And you know, all this time I realized I have been forgetting to plug our Threadless store. (gasps) Right. We have a Threadless store. That's right. You can log on to ghoststoryguys.threadless.com. And buy shirts, mugs, uh, shower curtains, if for some weird-ass reason you wanted to think of us while you're in the shower. I want a Ghost Story Guy shower curtain. That'd be cool. <laughs> it's just such a great logo. But, uh, yeah, no, check us out. You can also find a link on our Facebook page. And if you do happen to purchase something from there, take a picture of it. Post it to us. Like, just. Oh, yeah, yeah. That we'll, would be so cool. Yeah, we'll put it on our Facebook page. Put it on the Instagram. Definitely. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. And, uh, of course, don't forget to check out Ian's book, Victoria's Most Haunted. You can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. For those of our listeners in the U.S., today's a big day. Ian's book, Victoria's Most Haunted, launches officially in the USA today. Yeah, Amazon.com and all those good places are going to have it available for purchase now. So order several copies for you, your friends, and your pets because it's a great book. <laughs> there you go. And it'll stop him from bitching that the book isn't selling. Oh. <laughs> then only I'll be bitching about my book not selling. There you go. Uh, speaking of which, you should check out my book, A Strange Little Place, The Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town. Available on Amazon.com.ca, Barnes & Noble, all those great places. Mm-hmm. Buy the digital copy. I make more money from it. Yeah, I know. E-reader, who knew? Telling you. Although, of course, th- I, this happens just as the market is moving away from e-readers. Is it really? Apparently, yeah. I've, I've read that younger generations are moving away from electric. They like the tactile sensation of, of a real book. book. Yeah, I get that. But to be honest with you, when you go on a trip, an e-reader... So much more easy than taking 13 books with you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got the Kindle app on my phone and I just use that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love my reader. So that's going to do it for us. We'll be back to you in two weeks with more stories. Until then, take care and be good to one another. Take care.